1: True Hauntings is a Human Labs original podcast.
4: Edinburgh has a whole lot of haunted history for tourists to explore. Ghost walks, creepy castles and sites of witch burnings. But this city in Scotland also has what some consider to be the most haunted graveyard in the
2: world. Greyfriars Kirkyard. In nineteen ninety-eight, a long dead George Mackenzie was awoken from his sleep, and has been haunting and disturbing people who enter into the kirkyard ever since. What has made the ghost of Mackenzie so angry? Why, after all of those years he lay at rest, did he begin to haunt his mausoleum? Hi, my name is Anne Rekovic, and I'm Renata Daniel, and we
4: welcome you to the True Hauntings podcast.
1: Evil lurks within the shadows of our homes and in the darkest corners of our minds. It follows us like a shadow, forever. This is where nightmares become reality. This is True Hauntings.
4: So, Anne... We've had another busy week.
2: It never stops. They say there's no rest for the wicked. We must be pure evil. That's all I can say. But <laughs>
4: Absolutely. It's, again, busy in the best possible way. Yes, and we've had some private investigations this week.
2: Yeah, um, we are still getting people calling us since the Kyle and Jackie O show and the other TV appearances we had asking for help. And uh, this week was a really interesting case because it was somebody that was being dragged out of a bed forcibly and he was in sheer terror. Yes, and this was an older
4: gentleman. Uh, And of course, we can't give you too many details because it is a private case, but
2: it didn't really end up the way you might think it would. And this is why it's really important that you have someone uh, on your team that is a counsellor and understands the way humans think, really. Indeed. And uh, I wonder sometimes what mistakes
4: can be made for people who go out on these private investigations and maybe... Just go to the dark side, now jump the gun a, a little. little bit too quickly, instead of trying to understand the circumstances that people find themselves in. But we also have another case coming up that is very, very different because this is a site, yes. a very old site, an old building that we get to investigate, and that's going to be extremely exciting. And it's four floors. Plus yes. a basement. Yes. and Huge. It is an overnight one, and you know how I love overnight <laughs> investigations. <laughs> yeah, she loves
2: coffee. <laughs> oh, it takes me days to get over it. Yeah, so we get older, it might be weeks. But you know <laughs> what? We're still going to do it and we're going to have fun because this is what we love. Absolutely. Can't wait for it. So let's
4: get on to this story. So we're going to be talking about... Greyfriars Kirkyard and the alleged haunting of Mackenzie's Poltergeist.
2: It's a clear, cold and dark night. There is no moon to light our way and we meet with the rest of the group who have all assembled to take part in tonight's ghost tour of Greyfriars Kirkyard, Scotland. The guide, who tells us he receives danger pay, says it's not unusual for people to pass out, vomit or find scratches or bruises they can't account for while inside the black mausoleum. The culprit for these attacks is known as the Mackenzie Poltergeist. He tells us to be ready and to stay together. The guide unlocks the gate and leads us inside the Covenanter's prison. I will admit to being fairly freaked out at this point. When I see the black mausoleum that we are all expected to squeeze into, I have a strong sense I should not go in. The guide stands at the entrance to the mausoleum, never quite coming inside. He starts talking, but I have no idea what he is saying. A woman bursts into tears and leaves the mausoleum. I remember at one point feeling what I can best describe as a mild electric shock under my feet. Suddenly, someone in a monster mask jumps into the entrance of the mausoleum, scaring the daylights out of us. Our hearts are pumping and I start to feel ill. Finally, after what seems like an eternity, we come out. My sister asks, how long have we been in there for? Ten minutes, my friend says, and my sister replies... She has no memory of anyone in a mask jumping out at us. I can't believe what she's saying. It feels like my ear is on fire, she says. She is breathing heavily. I suggest we leave. As I wait for the bus, my sister complains that her stomach hurts. When she lifts her shirt, there are three distinct scratches across her stomach. She says she doesn't know where they came from, but probably thinks she must have scratched herself inside the mausoleum. A few minutes later, she says her back hurts. We check the spots where she says it hurts, and there are three more scratches there. This too, we just reason away. We can't be thinking this is a ghostly attack, surely. I tell her that maybe she has somehow scratched herself while she was leaning against a wall inside. My sister is slowly freaking out. We get back home and within five minutes my sister jumps again, yelling in pain. My chest, she shouts and takes off her shirt. I think I may have screamed. I don't really remember. I, I do know that my sister was a lot calmer than I was. Her chest is covered in scratches. They are strangely symmetrical and, and look like some kind of pictograph. Our friend who has come home with us complains that his stomach is upset and he thinks he's going to throw up and head straight to the toilet. I head into the kitchen just to make us all a cup of tea when he comes out of the toilet, he finds my sister charging towards him. She stares blankly, directly at him and by the way she is moving he knows that something is very wrong. She is moving her mouth but no noise is coming out. He holds her back and pushes against a force that he later says he feels truly unnatural. It takes the both of us to hold her off and make her sit down. Once seated, she seems to settle. This is too much for me and I decide to take both my sister and my friend to the hospital. A nurse sees us and we tell her what's happening. She looks strangely at us, as if we're playing some silly prank on her. She is not amused and tells us to go see a priest instead and that she is not in the mood for such silliness. We just decide to go home. We decided to all stay together this night and and just try to sleep in the morning, the scratches on my sister's back have turned into red welts, and my friend tells me he spent half the night in the toilet vomiting. Neither of them want to go back to the hospital, and we spend the day trying to make sense of what happened to us. We never really talk about it again. Was this entity the departed spirit of Sir George Mackenzie? Who knows? but I believe there is something in that mausoleum humans don't fully understand. Maybe one day we will. What I do know is if I'm ever fortunate enough to go back in Edinburgh, I will leave it well alone.
4: Greyfriars Kirkyard is the graveyard surrounding Greyfriars Kirk in Edinburgh. It takes its name from the
2: Franciscan friary on the site, which was dissolved in 1560. You know, I have a link to that. Yes. I do. My middle name, or my confirmation name was Francis after St. Francis, which is what the Franciscan friary is all about. Sorry, just had to make that about me for a second. Okay. The
4: churchyard was founded in August 1562 after the royal sanction was granted to replace the churchyard at St. Giles Cathedral. It is located at the southern edge of the old town. Burials have been taking place since the late 16th century and a number of notable Edinburgh residents are interred at Greyfriars just can't get over these ages 16th century wow I'm a little wow. jealous
2: of the recorded history of some of the uh England and Ireland and Europe and yeah, um,
4: yeah. most interesting thing is I've been there
2: yeah bragger oh, I love
4: oh, I, I love grey friars. I love it she it had a different amazing. friend to
2: take on travels back then not yes. me <laughs> sorry
4: now by the way if you're wanting to work out why in the hell we're saying Kirkyard instead of Churchyard, it's because that's a Scottish name that is given to a churchyard. So you will hear me say Kirkyard all the way through. Now in the daylight hours when you go into Greyfriars, it's an absolutely beautiful place and it truly is. It's Great for a tranquil walk all the way around. So there are headstones at the front of the church and around the side, and the headstones are fascinating. You've got eerie carved stone angels of death. You've got skulls with crossbones and other ghoulish figures that adorn all of the grave sites. It's very interesting and completely different from anything you would see in Australia. You'll have to put up some
2: of those photos on our Facebook page to show people, because I know you, you would have taken lots of photos. I
4: did. Yep. The most interesting ones that I found though, were the metal grill ones that were covered.
2: Oh, we know what that's for. That's to keep the vampires in. Yeah, Well the the zombies.
4: Yes, we're not used to seeing these in Australia, but there was a reason for these coverings, and it's not about keeping the bodies in; it's about not allowing the bodies to escape.
2: What do you mean, not letting the bodies to escape? Well, they're going to be zombies and, and dig their
4: way out. Oh, with a little bit of help. You see, in the eighteen hundreds, the University of Edinburgh was very close by, and it was a prestigious medical school. And they had a program there that was just flourishing with lots of students coming in, but the students required corpses to practice on, cadavers. And, of course, many people died in a large city like Edinburgh because, of course, they were all living on top of each other and you could hardly have called the place sanitised, not like today when we have to sanitise all the time through and COVID. Ankle deep in poop, in other mm, words. Yes, yes. Gardilu was the big um, call, Gardilu, and they would throw all the urine and everything out of the windows. They'd shout oh. Gardilu first. Is that where then- the word
2: loo came from, <laughs> <or the> toileting?
4: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, and But... All of this caused an underground trade in stolen corpses. And, of course, the people that stole these corpses were called body snatchers and they would be given lots of money by local students and it became a roaring trade. Now, soon this practice became an epidemic and to prevent the bodies of your loved ones being taken out of their grave sites, families would protect them by boxing them in with these iron cages that they called mort safes. These ran deeply into the ground, so it would take quite some time to try and extricate these iron cages off the grave sites. And of course, you know, you can't do that. You're wasting too much time. Yeah, just be too too hard basket. They'd move on to an easier grave. Yes, absolutely. So yes, that's what the mort safes were for. So it makes the churchyard or the Kirkyard even more interesting. Now, there's also another little grander story associated with Greyfriars, and that's the story of Greyfriars Bobby, the loyal dog who guarded his master's grave. Ooh, I've got a little bit about this later on. Mmm, intriguing. So Bobby's headstone is at the entrance to the kirkyard. So you walk in and it was erected by the Dog Aid Society in 1981. It's quite small, but people leave balls and twigs for Bobby to play with and little toys. It's quite beautiful. People come to pay their respects and listen to the story of this particular gorgeous little dog who uh, was believed to be um, the dog of a gentleman who was buried at the kirkyard. Bobby actually lies under a tree at the kirkyard's entrance because they couldn't bury him really on sanctified ground, even though he now has a headstone and everyone goes there. He is actually buried outside under a tree. And they also have erected a statue of Bobby opposite the Graveyard's Gate at the junction of George IV Bridge and Candlemaker Row. Candlemaker Row is so fascinating. It's just this dippy road that goes all the way down into the grass market with these tiny little shops and it's called Candlemaker's Row because that's where all the Candlemakers were. Oh, really? Yes. Who would have thought? <laughs> Uh, it's the, going back to the statue, it's cast in bronze and everyone that goes there has to have a photo of themselves with Bobby. Or well, it must be of Molly. Molly Mm. Malone statue. Yes, and or our own dog on on the Tucker Box. Oh, yes. Yep. And um, it's considered good luck, of course, and some people will give his nose a kiss or a rub
2: back before COVID. Not not in COVID times. (laughs) Uh,
4: And so if you go and check out dear old Bobby, his nose is very, very shiny with all the people that have rubbed against him, if you could say that, (laughs) over all these years. Now, Bobby's master was known as Old Jock. John Gray. And the story, depending on which one you read, says that Bobby famously slept over the top of his grave for 14 years. Oh. And he used to go up to the pub that was around near where his brass statue is to be fed. And yeah, so the locals remember him ever since.
2: Now, I have to throw in my little bit there. I just oh. have to tell you. Uh oh. Um, first off, Bobby yes. slept on the grave for fourteen years. Yeah, good age for a dog. It is a good age for a dog. So how old was the dog <laughs> when, when dear old Jock died? Must have been a puppy. He must have been. Very faithful puppy. I know, right? To stay there for so long. But this is funny. Apparently, um there's reports of the ghost of the the dog in there, but it's a bit of a furphy. Uh, uh, One of the tour guides or uh, one of the tour companies decided they needed to have stories of their own because there's quite a few tour companies in there. Mm -hmm. So they've they've sort of made up a little bit of the story about the dog being in there. And the story keeps changing because people keep writing articles and stories about Bobby, the the dog from the Greyfriars. And Originally, they were saying that you know he was uh, belonged to a policeman and then someone else said he belonged to a shepherd. and and every time would someone would write the story, it was like Chinese whispers, it would get changed a little bit. But I think it's really lovely that they've got the little statue there anyway, and people people can pay homage to the loyalty of their pets.
4: Well, that's true. And me, probably like everyone else that's gone in there, went into the church and paid my money dutifully to get a postcard and to get a story of Bobby. And then I went up and I had a photograph with the um, the statue and we had a look at the pub and the stories written on the front um, panels of the pub and everything. So, I mean, you take that away and that's a whole chunk of great storytelling there that's gone. So of Sorry, course, yeah. just
2: ruined your, your whole moment there I know, with Bobby. Sorry about that.
4: Oh, I know. I'll just pretend you never said yeah, that to just, me. Just pretend, because you know that's that's You're what happens hate me with later good on stories. Too. Keep going. <laughs> now, most of the hauntings though at the Kirkyard are, are linked to the ghost of George Mackenzie. Now, George Mackenzie was a judge who presided over the trials of the Presbyterian Covenanters in the 1670s. The National Covenant was originally signed in the Greyfriars' kirkyard because at that time it was a place of legal, free public assembly. Now, in 1638, the Covenanters were members of a 17th century Scottish religious and political movement, and they supported the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. So the
2: religion was Covenanters.
4: Well, that's what they called Presbyterian themselves. Presbyterian
2: Covenanters, right, okay. Yes,
4: yep. Yeah. And that is because they use the word the covenant, which is a biblical term for a bond or agreement with God. Ah. So the story is that the covenanters signed this covenant to say that God was the head of the church. And when King Charles I came onto the throne, he wanted to be the head of the church.
2: And oh, the, he wanted to be one step higher than God. Yeah, of course. Well, oh, why not? Well, you
4: had the Queen becoming the the you know the leader of the church in England, so you know he wanted to do the same thing. This caused friction between the Covenanters and the King and the rule, and so they were the rebellion. At that particular point in time, they were rebelling against the crown. And so Mackenzie was the gentleman who then came into this whole affray and had to deal with these covenanters. And one of the things that he did do was imprison 1,200 of them in a field next to Greyfriars Kirkyard. So, just a bit of background to George Mackenzie. And this is where it gets really, really odd because in the early
2: years, he seemed to be a decent fellow and then he turned rogue. Yeah, and we need to know this sort of information for the background to set the story as to why we have this poltergeist with his name. Mm.
4: So, he was born in Dundee around 1636. And he was educated. He was an educated man. He so, went on. To,
2: he, he's not related to Crocodile Dundee at all? No. N- Just born in the town of Dundee. Y- yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll shut up yes, now. Yes.
4: So he was educated at the University of Aberdeen, the University of St. Andrews, and, the, and a university in France. Uh, and he went on to have a legal career. So he was called to the bar in 1659. I hope he ordered some good drinks. Tish, sorry. Oh, God. I had to do that. She had to get a joke in. (laughs) It might be the only one I get, so there you go. In his early career, he defended Archibald Campbell, the Marquis of Argyle, in his trial in 1661. Now, Argyle was a covenanter and he was actually executed as a result. So McKinsey so defend- didn't do a good job. He was defending a covenanter. He was That's defending a covenanter. Interesting. The end bit to his poor story is that Campbell's head was later displayed on a spike outside St. Giles Kirk in Edinburgh. This oh. is how much they hated the covenanters. Wow. Getting your head cut off and put on a spike is a pretty awful thing. I wonder whether he's got a ghost. I'd say he would anyway. Later on, Mackenzie became a justice deputy between 1661 and 1663 and that role had him involved in witch trials. Ooh. So interestingly, he dismissed the witch trials, describing the accused as being harmless
2: old women. There, there you go. That's wow. surprising. That is really surprising. And I actually found a little note on him as well saying that, Um, he was a bit of a forward thinker for his time because in the middle of all this chaos, of all this rebellion and everything that was going on, he was suggesting that maybe if they educated the lower classes that they might actually be able to do better than what they were doing because they had no education, no knowledge uh, and would – often run their lives based on wives' tales and and sheer gut instinct and he, he said, you know, if we educate these people, they might be able to do better. Mm, there you go. So what happened to Mackenzie? What when did this change occur?
4: What I I just don't see the link of You how... got married? <laughs> <laughs> Could be. But he was he seemed such a really great guy, really you know, doing his best. And then he served as a member of the Scottish Parliament for the County of Ross and was made Lord Advocate of Scotland in 1677. That's, that's a pretty big role. Mm. So did the power go to his head? And I wonder he, what happened. He turned into a ruthless bastard. Turned into a ruthless bastard. Now, Scotland by this stage was up to its
2: armpits in the Covenanting Skirmishes. that not make a good name for a band, the Covenanting Skirmishes. <laughs>
4: I thought you were going to say up to its armpits, but never mind. (laughs) So Charles I was still attempting to impose his rule on the Scottish church, but the Scots wouldn't have any of it, of course. Jesus was the only one to be the head of their church, and the covenanters were determined to preserve Presbyterianism. So Mackenzie was put in charge of dealing with these skirmishing covenanters, and he earned a reputation. His nickname became Bloody Mackenzie.
2: Bloody Mackenzie.
4: Now, after the aft- aftermath of the Battle of Bothwell Bridge. An
2: important battle. In
4: 1679. It's the coven- bridge. Get off it. The, the <laughs> Covenanters were defeated in, uh, on the orders of Mackenzie. Several hundred of them were taken prisoner and were locked up in a section of Greyfriars Kirkyard. Ironically, as we've said before, the exact place where the Covenanters' movement began back in 1638. So they were imprisoned there in what could be described as the very first concentration camp. They were fed little, succumbed to disease, and they were left to suffer in the open during the yeah, winter. I, I
2: read a good description. They were forced to lay down on their bellies for five months through the winter months. Now, it's freaking freezing in Scotland. Oh, yes. Um, they were given bread and water to survive, basically to keep them alive so that they could keep making them suffer until they bend their knee and swear allegiance. And, of course, I mean, they're fierce Scotsmen. They're not going to bend their knee to someone that they don't want to or they don't believe in. Especially Um, coming from England. Yeah, and the, the suffering would have been absolutely unbelievable. And if they complained about their plight, they were taken out the front and shot. But I think what you have to remember is that one man's terrorist is another man's champion. So this guy, Mackenzie, was trying to humiliate these people so that nobody would ever do this again. In actual fact, they're probably cementing the fact that these men were their heroes and champions.
4: mm Absolutely. Um, The area that they are buried in, because in in most cases, once they died, they just literally dug a hole and buried them where they lay, uh, is now closed off. Um, You only get to go in there if you do one of the tours that allows you to go into the Covenanters area. And I remember when I was there, it was locked up. I couldn't get in. Uh, It would have been quite interesting to stand on that ground because they literally say that the ground ran
2: red with people's blood soaked into it. Imagine the anger and and the emotions that have been sunk into the very earth there.
4: Mm. Now, the whole story of Mackenzie and, and his legacy do go on from that point, and his coffin which lies in the mausoleum, the black mausoleum, is said to have been moving by itself, been seen to move by itself. Uh, and he's been driven to despair because he's buried so close to the Covenanter's prison because it's in the same area. Covenanter's prison is further down the hill and he sits up, allegedly looking over the site in the black mausoleum. So generations of Edinburgh schoolboys obviously have dared one another oh, to, I'm
2: looking forward to, this.
4: to go over to the door of the mausoleum and utter the rhyme. Oh, here comes her Scottish accent. Are you I, ready? I, no, I'm not even going to attempt it. I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to say it. Oh, go for it. Bloody Mackenzie, come oot if you dare. Draw the snek and lift the bar. That didn't rhyme, Renata. No, I know. Don't blame me. Don't
2: blame me. (laughs) Well, if you dare, draw the snek and lift the bar. (laughs) Oh, very good. I just faked that then. I was trying to do it before and I couldn't do it for the life of me. (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway, there is a book written all about the experiences of a tour guide that worked there called The Ghost That Haunted Itself, and they talk about the things that happen to people and the things that happen to them. So this is Jan Andrew Henderson. Do you know that he actually
4: came to live in Australia? I wonder if we can find him. Wow, that would be fantastic. If any of you know where Jan Andrew Henderson lives, let us know. We'll search for
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: And look, some of the things that he says is um, this poltergeist isn't some drippy ghost that flits past looking like it's been blown off a washing line. It attacks people. They've seen bites, burns, scratches appear mysteriously on visitor's skin. He's watched people fall down unconscious or burst into tears claiming something invisible is hitting them. He said that he often feels a bit sorry for the customers because they don't actually believe something supernatural will happen until it does. There was another experience. He was talking about five children that were on the tour and they began screaming all together at the one time. Could you imagine that if they did that to us at Maitland Jail where we run tours there? You'd you'd want to clip them around the ear hole. I would. Um, but they were all screaming out that something was choking them, and he thought that they were just cooking up a story, which would have would have been a lot of fun at the time, spooking all the all the people. Until he realised that none of them actually knew each other, and there was also a minister who tried to exorcise the poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently, they reported back to the tour guide and the reporter saying he had never experienced anything like it, and feared the fight might kill him. Which he did. And he died a few weeks later. Boom, boom. Oh, and then oh, I love any any stories to do with loud Americans. I have a lot of American friends who are beautiful, but I've also been on a bus trip with some very loud Americans. Not 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 Dave's tours. It was before Dave, pre-Dave. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble, in trouble off Dave Schrader. Um, and this, this loud American was rubbishing everything that this tour guide was saying. And then all of a sudden toppled over, out cold, into a large puddle. And I think if anything, uh, Jan Andrew would have liked to thank the poltergeist at that stage. to yes. say thank you for getting rid of that one for me. <laughs> we We have all occasionally had that one person on a tour that likes to stand out. And then, you know, Jen Andrew talks about the fact it could be psychosomatic, but the sheer volume of reports and evidence that they have is overwhelming. And it's hard to call that many people liars. Mm. Or is it? But we'll talk about that later too. Mm -hmm. They also say that they've got many photographs of injuries inflicted by the poltergeist and over 100 pages of eyewitness accounts that have been emailed. There's also reports of dozens of birds lying unmarked but dead inside the prison. And this has been very disconcerting to the visitors. It's a real head-scratcher. Mmm, for nets. And on every tour, some visitor will complain that their camera, phone or watch has stopped working. And they've also seen the aftermath of numerous spontaneous fires that break out around Greyfriars. Now that's interesting. Could it be squatters? People that are in there just trying to keep themselves warm on a cold Scottish night? It could be. It could be, but I think there's another story later about that. So has he had any issues himself? Did you read about that? Yeah, so look, these guys aren't actually immune to harm themselves. Um, This particular person collected enough evidence and stories to write a whole book on it and they actually had a fairly major experience themselves after publishing the book. So they got it published, and then their flat, which overlooked the graveyard, was destroyed by a flash fire, incinerating everything that they owned, including all the notes on the stories of Greyfriars. Ooh. But being a progressive person that they were, they had saved everything, so it was all right. They had it. They outsmarted them. But they're not quitting their job. They love their job. And... I don't blame them, really. I'd be utterly fascinated with a, a location like this. Uh, I'd just keep going back and saying, touch me, touch me, <laughs> scratch me. careful what you wish for.
4: Yeah, I, I'm a taphophile. I love cemeteries. I love walking through cemeteries. And even though it's something that most ghost hunters here in Australia just don't do. You know, it's, it's one of those experiences that when you go overseas, you relish because they're a little bit more liberal with their haunted cemeteries. They do allow people in and they do allow tours there. So you hear all the wonderful stories. But yes, I agree with you. I would probably love to run a tour in a cemetery like that. And I'd be back time and time again to see what was happening. Now, This is the interesting bit here. This is where the story behind the story begins because in all of this, Mackenzie seemed to lie very still until 1998. Why 1998? What's special about that, Renata? Because something or someone disturbed Mackenzie from his eternal slumber and unleashed him upon the unwary souls who ventured into the kirkyard so the story goes it was a stormy night of course when a homeless person looking for shelter found himself inside the black mausoleum so he'd wandered into the kirkyard and had a bit of a look around to see where can i hide because it's going to come down any moment in bucket loads of rain so he broke the lock on the door of the black mausoleum and went inside There, allegedly, he found coffins belonging to some of Mackenzie's relatives, and he supposedly broke one open out of boredom or some morbid curiosity to look inside. I wouldn't be touching those things, but anyway. So suddenly, the floor beneath him gave way and he fell down into a pit.
2: Serves himself right.
4: The space beneath the mausoleum contained bodies as well. These bodies were those of the plague victims that were placed in there long before Mackenzie's body went in.
2: It must have been like a a quick way to get rid of them, just dig a hole, dump them in. That's right.
4: Exactly. That's
2: exactly what happened.
4: So despite their age and due to them having been sealed up the bodies were still in a state of decomposition
2: that's oh, unbelievable my gosh. how many how how many hundreds years, decades? Of years hundreds, hundreds of years. years and because it was sealed tight mm-hmm. they didn't have the chance to decompose it makes you wonder whether the plague was still active because it had something to feed on ew, ew.
4: It's hard to imagine the kind of terror he must have felt trying to get out of that chamber. Run away, run away. Oh, my gosh. But he finally did and he fled from the scene um, running straight into a poor man who was trying to walk his dog. He probably was screamed in his face. I can just imagine that little scenario. So
2: imagine what the poor man is, this this scruffy homeless man's gone charging past him, screaming hysterically, and he's going, was that a real person or was that a ghost? So this was the first disturbance of Mackenzie's
4: gravesite, but ever since then, this is when all the strange things have started to happen. But it's not the only case that has disturbed the tomb. The next one happened in 2004, and this was written about in the newspapers because this is pretty awful. The headline read, Corpse Ghouls Walk Free. And this is a story about these two young teenagers who became the first people in over 100 years to be found guilty of violating a grave and a corpse. And, of course, it went to court. So this goes back to uh, 2004. And they're only aged 17. 17 and 15. 15. Yep. Sonny Devlin was 17. The young 15-year-old, his name's been withheld. And they were found guilty of hacking off a corpse's head. My God. Yep. So apparently, this must have been a dare. I'm sure it must have been a dare. And remember, school kids from around the area have been daring each other to go into Mackenzie's Crypt for years and years. So when this went to court, the court heard how the youths caused over £10,000 worth of damage during the incident. The doors of the Mackenzie mausoleum were forced open and the mummified head of a male corpse was cut off with a penknife. Now Devlin is said to have put his fist into the neck and talked to the head like a glove puppet. Oh my God. He later was caught after returning to the graveyard to show off a girl to a girlfriend who didn't believe his claim that he had broken into the tomb. It makes
2: you wonder: was he doing this so he could get laid? Was this what it was? Like? How much sex actually happens in graveyards? Uh, per- I don't know, oh, I but don't apparently want to know. a lot. Oh. Apparently, apparently, lot. What? What would convince
4: people to do that? Ew. But so these kids have gone off. After a day and gone, yeah, we're going to get this. So they've headed off there, gone into the mausoleum, pulled the head out, taken it back to the friends, shown Hello, it off.
2: My name's Mackenzie.
4: <laughs> exactly. Uh, one of the girls there said, Oh, where did you get that from? I don't believe you've gone into Mackenzie's mausoleum. And they've said, Well, come and find out for yourself. I'll Let's prove take it you to in you. there. I'll prove it to you, but they were caught by one of the tour guides Mm. when they were in the cemetery and he's lobbed up two of them and, and has said, what in the hell are you doing? Now, they're carrying something in a blanket. They've bolted, they've put the skull down somewhere, hidden it behind some of the vaults and run away. Run away! The police have arrived They've found the skull. They have retrieved it. They've gone over to the mausoleum. They've realised that it's been taken from there. That's where it's opened. The kids have been found and it's gone to court. So, of course, a lawyer, Jim Stevenson, says to the court, you know, we know that this is a serious charge, but please, my defendant is showing regret. He's only a young lad. Oh,
2: wasn't it shown some regret? <laughs> well,
4: you know, he's a likeable young man <laughs> yeah. and he has got he's come from a fairly complicated personal background. Oh, he's had a tough life. He's had a tough life. So they're given probation and, you know, a couple of hundred hours worth of community service and told to be very good boys and never do this again. Now, the thing is that what has been enacted is an old Scottish law. It's the ancient crime of violation of a sepulchre. Wow. Disturbing a dead person. And this can actually be punished by life imprisonment. Oh, my the God. The charge wow. has never been changed because no one has done Nobody's this for done 100 it. years. <laughs>
2: There you go, children. So how did he feel about his sentence, just getting a couple of hundred hours? I'd
4: say he breathed a sigh (laughs) of relief and um, he just said, "I just look, I just want to get back into my life. I, I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. So, yes, he was very regretful. Now, in the end, Mackenzie's head goes back where it belongs. The base of the tomb is welded shut so no one can get back into the coffin. Now, let's just turn to some of the uh, more interesting things that have happened to people who have visited the mausoleum. And there's a story that was written up in the Scotsman newspaper in 2006 that says that there have been 450 documented attacks and 140 people have collapsed And there is even a suspicion that the Mackenzie poltergeist was responsible for the death of one local psychic. Oh. So there was an exorcism at the mausoleum in the year 2000 by a gentleman called Colin Grant, who was a local
2: minister at a spiritualist church. Now, it makes you wonder, did they get permission to do this? Or have they just taken it upon themselves that this site obviously needs an exorcising um, and have come down. Well, yeah, are.
3: I wonder
4: what brought him there in that particular year, what had happened. And after the
2: the uh, poltergeist of Humpty Doo, we know how they feel about uh, the priests coming <laughs> in to do things. <laughs> yes. So Grant says that he felt the presence of hundreds of tormented
4: souls and definitely and certainly the presence of evil. Now, he had to actually stop. While doing the exorcism, he was in great distress and he had to leave Greyfriars. And apparently a few weeks later, he was found dead of a heart attack. So did the poltergeist get him? Now, Colin Grant Jr., his son, came to the very same spot just over a year later to perform an exorcism himself. He hadn't been led there up till this point in time until he was approached by the Discovery Channel. That oh, wanted to okay. do a documentary, and so he's put his hand up and go. And me, went, me, me, me. You know, by the way, my dad had um, a bit of an experience while doing an exorcism, and died later on. Um, yeah, maybe I can tell you a bit of a story. But he walked up to the kirkyard and found that he couldn't set foot through the padlocked gate. Now,
2: he, well, if it's padlocked, no wonder he can't get through the gate. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Just looking from a scientific point of view there. (laughs) But you'd think with the Discovery Channel they would have
4: at least kind of like, you know. Opened it. (laughs) Opened it. But anyway, so that kind of fell by the wayside. But then he was contacted by America's Fox TV and they wanted to do a documentary series on some of the scariest places in the world and they asked Colin to show them the Covenant as prison. So he said No. So he said yes. Oh, yeah. said yes this time. Okay. Yes, and by sheer coincidence, it was a year since his father had passed away, and tried to do an exorcism there. Oh, so Colin went in with a reporter and a photographer and uh, the photographer's assistant, and he also said, "You just you couldn't get over the unnerving presence of energies in the atmosphere." He said it was really malevolent in there. But he stood in there with the crew and, of course, they were doing the recordings and he said, bowed my head and after a few minutes... I did a silent exorcism where I asked for the area to be sealed and calmed and to make sure no one came to harm, including himself.
2: Well, that's no fun for the reporters and camera crew and everyone else that's turned up if he's just standing there talking to himself in his head. Yeah. That's not how exorcisms are done. I've seen people yelling and throwing things and... No, just mm. a silent one. I'm just, just going to talk to them one. ahead. Well, fair enough. So, I, I look, I, I
4: don't know enough about this to cast judgment here. Colin Grant, his father, Colin Grant Senior, was one of the most respected mediums in Scotland and he actually died at his shop uh, a few weeks after the first exorcism that was, was going to be Six weeks, finished. wasn't it? Yeah, six yeah. weeks. Um And Colin Jr., I guess, took on this opportunity to tell his his story. Walk
2: in his father's footsteps for a bit.
4: Yeah, walk in his father's footsteps in his glory, maybe. He did go on to say, though, that people thought that his father's passing was linked to his work at the Covenanter's Prison and Mackenzie's Poltergeist, but the family believed that it wasn't related. Wasn't
2: Hadn't he actually had some heart attacks earlier. Yes, apparently so, a
4: number of so heart attacks. once
2: again, we've got a, a haunting of some form or other and someone happens to die six weeks afterwards of a heart attack and they they want to associate it with the ghost of, of some form or other. We had this happen in Um But in actual fact, he was a person who was prone to heart attacks.
4: Mm-hmm. Wasn't a well man. Colin did go on to say that it wasn't only that area that he thought that was haunted in Greyfriars Kirkyard, he did go past a number of different crypts and felt that there was a presence there as well.
2: What could be behind all of this? This is what I want to know. Yes. So first off, I've got to ask a question of you. Does this fit the criteria of a poltergeist? Well, no, it doesn't.
4: Poltergeist is a German word for noisy ghost. Plus, poltergeists are normally known for throwing things. Um, They will throw stones. They will throw items across the room. They will stack chairs or furniture or do odd things using their energy. doesn't seem to be noted here in any of the articles that we've read that this particular ghost
2: moves things about. And the other question I have is... Why is it Mackenzie's poltergeist? Why are we assuming that it is Mackenzie that is behind all of this? Because he was um, a notorious figure in history. Do we have any proof that it's Mackenzie? You would have to go
4: and ask all of the people associated with the tours and find out where they have gotten their information. And I guess from the point of view of the fact that It's all directed at what is allegedly the mausoleum.
2: The Black Mausoleum. That allegedly belongs to Mackenzie. Well, I'm about to drop a bomb on that one. Yeah. Apparently the Black Mausoleum is not Mackenzie's tomb. What? Now, I was listening to a great interview called Monster Talk, which is a um, science show presented by The Skeptic magazine. And they were talking to this great character called Fred, who was uh, a tour guide from a company called City of the Dead. Uh, now, they were, the, I think, one of the original ones to be running tours there. Yep. Uh, and, of course, as people do, they get onto your tours, and then they try to copy your tours and run it themselves and make out that they're better than everybody else. Really? Yeah. Did that, that, that trigger? That never happens in Australia. has no, never, ever happened. No. So they would come along and they would try to take notes and try to remember the stories, and then they would go and start their own tour companies and copy what these people were doing. Uh, and for some unknown reason, they started saying the Black Mausoleum was... Mackenzie's turn. I wonder whether they use the Black Mausoleum because it's the only one big enough to hold tour groups. Well, they say they can cram up to 100 people in there, but...
4: Yeah, no way. No (laughs) No way can they put 100 people in there. (laughs) That would be cramming.
2: So... Yeah, when they found out that they were reporting this as Mackenzie's tomb, they let the the story keep happening. Uh, and in actual fact, Mackenzie's tomb is, is quite a bit smaller. And just another little bit of information, when that homeless guy fell through, they discovered a third tomb within Mackenzie. They knew his wife was there. They knew that he was there, but there was a mysterious thing third tomb that they have no idea who it was. And I think it was a female of some form or other. Now, are we
4: talking about the...
2: Real real tomb? The real one. Wow. Now, this Fred was talking about his experiences and he was talking about, you know, places of discomfort, not feeling safe, cold spots. He ended up with three scratches on him as well, which he didn't feel at the time but was revealed afterwards. Um, He would have people sometimes collapse and convulse Mm -hmm. and, you know, he'd pick them up and try to get them out and then they'd collapse and convulse again. And once they got out of the cemetery, they were Fine. There was guides that were randomly strangled by their own scarves and even some that got locked inside the graveyard, even though the lock is on the outside.
4: Oh, no. So how
2: on earth did they get locked in? Now, this black tomb, now, I was trying to hear the name. I think he said it was the Dundas family that, that owned that actual tomb. And in actual fact, there's very little activity near Mackenzie's tomb. Just he was the right sort of character to make it all fit. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to say that when I went to Greyfriars,
4: I poked my head into the Black Mausoleum. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. It was the middle of the day. Um, I went there probably about two or three times at different periods of the day while we were staying in Edinburgh because it was just one of those places of complete fascination.
2: I really didn't feel a thing at the Black Mausoleum Mm. at all. And, uh, look, they, they also asked was there any other ghosts that are reported within the vicinity? And there was a spectral white lady, which normally you get spectral white ladies yeah. <laughs> and children, but that those sightings are actually very rare. It just seems to be this, this energy that seems to attack people and make them quite unwell. So, if people do have an incident, they have a book back at the office and they get them to write down their incidents. Mm-hmm. Now, they've got- well over 500, probably 1,000 by now because this was a fairly older interview. What I would like to know is do they also record non-incidences, so where they weigh up how many people have had an experience compared to how many people haven't?
4: Now you were telling me some fascinating numbers about the amount of people going through this site. Now this
2: particular company runs five tours a night, seven days a week, and they are only one of the tour companies. Wow. So you have got so many people going through there. And you you sort of have to ask, are people having these experiences where they may have scratched themselves or hurt themselves before they go into the graveyard, into the kirkyard, mm-hmm. um, and they don't even think to look for it. You'd be all rugged up at Scotland at night and then you um, you get home and then you notice these scratches mm-hmm. and you're primed to look for these scratches. So you have to associate it, of course, that it must have been from Mackenzie. It's always three scratches. It's always three scratches. <laughs> um, so people are right. Arriving- there in this heightened state and therefore they're quite jumpy. And sometimes if they get a bit of a scare, they can actually go down pretty quick. Mm -hmm. They faint. So is this some of these convulsions that they're talking about? And there's even other people who feel the need to have an experience because they want to be special. Mm-hmm. They want to be one of the ones that oh, have, have had an experience, have so, had a story. Look, I'm, I'm being, you know, good cop, bad cop. I'm being the bad cop here. Um, are, they, are they faking it a little bit because they've got themselves worked up into a bit of a lather and uh, they, um, oh, yes, I've, I've just been scratched. Yeah, right, okay. Um, but for the entity itself... I, I really don't feel it's a poltergeist. If I'm looking at from what we've learned along the way, it sounds to me a little bit more primeval. Is it something that is drawn to the anguish, the pain and the anger of these human souls that were made to lie on the dirt trying to defend their faith mm-hmm. and being asked to kneel to someone they did not believe was God? But just a human. Or is it something that the public are feeding? And they've actually created this thought form because they've all decided it's Mackenzie's poltergeist. They're feeding into the story, they're making the story bigger and bigger. People arrive in these groups of up to 35 people in five tours a night, wanting to see the Mackenzie poltergeist, wanting to see if somebody gets scratched. So they're giving their energy into creating this being. Which now lives in the Black Mausoleum, whether it wants to or not. And as Fred was saying, it seems now that this entity has made its nest, as he described it, in the Black Mausoleum. And when they were starting the tours there, he was saying that the reason why they called it a poltergeist is because they didn't know what else to call it. So just calling it Mackenzie's Poltergeist gave it a name. Mm Mm-hmm. But it gave it street cred. Yep. And uh that that would bring people in to mm-hmm. to look at it and experiences. And should should they maybe close down the, the cemetery, the kirkyard, so that this thing is not being fed anymore? Oh, but the kirkyard would lose so much money
4: mm. from these people not coming anymore. So it's it's this yeah. Double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah, a
2: little bit of a catch-22 there.
4: (laughs) And do you then kind of have this time where you go, oh, it's all too much and it's all too evil we have to close it down? We we can't. It could be an
2: elemental. It could be. um, Or demon. Could be. I don't really know. But- I just hope they keep the tours going a little bit longer so that at least we can get in there and experience it ourselves. I'd love
4: to take you there. It's just one of those sites where you have to walk around and experience. And I think I think anyone who reads anything about the Covenanters and Greyfriars Kirkyard will be able to be in the spirit of the place. And so I understand ghost tours and I understand what they're trying to do because, hey, we try and do that as well on oh, our no, tours. Exactly.
2: And people say to us we shouldn't be poking the dead and we shouldn't be making money off them. But do you know what? People love this and they that's do. why they keep coming back and that's why they're running five tours a night and this this entity is still out there and still doing its stuff and I'd love to get to experience it. Hopefully soon we
0: shall.
4: That brings us to the end of our episode, our deep dive into Greyfriars Kirkyard and the Black Mausoleum in Scotland under the castle at Edinburgh. We hope you've enjoyed that and you'll think about going there yourself and experiencing the site because truly I do recommend it. And the book itself, The ghost That Haunted Itself, I, I actually have to say I loved reading it. There, it was part... You know, you kind of lose yourself in where the fantasy starts because it's such an awesome story. It's a, it's a book I have on my shelf and I've read it a number of times. I still love reading it. So, you know, kudos to the author.
2: I loved it. So join us next week for Lizzie Borden's House. Is it haunted or is it not? Is she still chop chopping away if you've enjoyed today's episode please leave us a positive review as it's a great way of remaining visible on itunes and it helps more people come along and listen to our show
1: thank you for listening to this episode of true hauntings if you like the show give us a five-star rating and leave a review Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. For more on Anne and Renata, follow at Anne and Renata on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Or visit their website, www.anneandrenata.com. True Hauntings is a part of the Human Labs Podcast Network.